Hello, I'm Andrew Suskind, and I'm a psychotherapist and author based in West Los Angeles since 1992, specializing in trauma and addictions. Welcome to our podcast, which I call It's Not About the Sex, also the title of my recent book. Here we focus on all topics related to compulsive sexual behavior, often referred to as sex addiction. In particular, we explore ways to build long-term sustainable recovery while establishing more meaningful connection and greater intimacy. Our intention is to offer fresh viewpoints, brand new perspectives, and practical user-friendly tools toward living a more deeply connected life. Let's get started. Hey, Sue. Hi, Andrew. How's it going? It's going great. It's going really good. How are you doing? Good. I just got back from a conference on Cape Cod. Cape Cod. Cape Cod. That's right. You're, well, you've, you're been away. you've been away for a little bit. So it's nice to regroup here, reconnect. Yeah. No, I, you know, I think that as we all need, we, we need that recharge time. And um, going back to Massachusetts was really like a, not only a recharge, but like a reunion, actually. Yeah, it looked like <laughs> I was super jealous of you going back there. It would have been really fun to be a part of that. But I, I'll have to um, live through you a little bit and hear your stories. Well, you were you were definitely there, but you know we can't always all be together. But next time we'll we'll try and make it so that all of us can be together. That would be fantastic. Yeah, the whole college uh, experience. <laughs> The big chill. That's right. For sure. For sure. So I I think you know that when I went back to Boston, I, I really went to see our friends. That was like my primary reason. And there was a conference in Hyannis, which for those yeah. who don't know the geography back there, is kind of like in the middle of Cape Cod, more or less. Um, but the Kennedys spent their summers there. Oh, yeah. So they got a compound there. Exactly. And there's a lot of memorabilia that goes along with the Kennedys. And there is a conference um, called the Cape Cod Symposium for Addictive Disorders. And so I, I presented there, which was fun. And the presentation is, is really a variation on what I've been doing quite a bit this year, which is the opposite of addiction is connection. Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So was and, it all recovery? I mean, all different addictions? Yeah, it was oh, okay. all addictions. I, I, I think there was a, a more of a dominant energy towards substance issues. Um, but there was definitely talk and, and focus on process addictions as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I wanted to do today is to actually talk about the presentation, not so much in detail, But I wanted to just have a conversation about this because it's something I've been turning over and turning over and turning over for for a while now. And um, I think you know that the expression, the the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Mm. It actually comes from a TED Talk. Did you know that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And the TED Talk was given by a British journalist named Johan Hari. And I recommend to all our listeners to check out the TED Talk. It's really well done. Less than 15 minutes, I'm pretty sure. And, you know, I know that in in my own recovery and in the recovery of my clients, connection is is really everything. 
You know, it's, it's so much of what keeps people on track. So I've always resonated with this quote. Um, and, and on the flip side, I know that when I disconnect, I always feel wobbly. I always feel unsteady. And, you know, in nervous system terms, I feel dysregulated, mm-hmm. right? Sure. So there's another expression, speaking of nervous system, that says we're biologically wired for connection, right? We're biologically uh-huh. wired for connection. So Sue, any clue what, what that really means? Well, I think it's just one of those things. I don't know, maybe it's part of Maslow's triangle there. Like one of the things we actually need is comfort and, and support and, you know, that connectiveness that is part of who we are biological. So I'd assume it would tie in with that, that need in order for survival to have that connection. That's a great word, survival, because like 25, 30 years ago, we didn't know that connection was really a, a necessary survival strategy. That, that in, intuitively, many of us lean in the direction of connection, right? We, we really want connection. I don't know about you, but I've always been a heat-seeking missile <laughs> and have always kind of gone in the direction of you know, where, where's the warmth, where's the love and sometimes looking for it in all the wrong places, but really looking for something that helps me feel more regulated, more, Mm -hmm. more like myself, more comfortable in my skin and connection is, is really all of those things, right? Yeah, it's important. And they, I mean, there's studies done with like, orphans i think in russia that didn't have any connection at all with anybody and and they that ended up you know that down the line they had a lot of issues and still probably do and struggle with that so yeah. um just at an infant you know not getting the connection but right. yeah, i think um this came up in a group that i was I was with a worker with last week where people were chatting a little bit about worried about the connection they were making with other people that may not have been in their um, sobriety circles or whatnot. And they were, they were really talking about how important it was. They felt it was so important to make these connections, but they were worried about, you know, that receipt, the other person receiving it and, and just getting really nervous and upset. Like they're not going to accept me or connect with me. Right. And going back to what you just said about orphans, we are talking about attachment patterns and attachment styles. So Mm -hmm. when we talk about attachment, we're really talking about the idea of how connected did did we feel to our caregivers as we were unable to care for ourselves, right? How, how safe did we feel? Could we depend on people to be consistent with us? Was love unconditional was acceptance unconditional so all of those things set patterns that we know nowadays create different ways of trying to connect or not right some people really are good at disconnecting some people are really good at connecting but i think what your group 
was um, referring to, and this is so great that they're even talking about this because it's it's not easy to identify this, is what connections are really going to be nourishing and helpful to their recovery and what kinds of connections are going to be either toxic or depleting and possibly um, sabotaging their recovery. So it doesn't matter what stage of recovery somebody's in, it's more a matter of can you be aware Mm -hmm. of when a connection is really going to, to nurture you or is it going to be a barrier for you? Right. Yep. Yeah. There's so many different levels to look at, but awareness is key. I'm finding out in all of this thing we call life and humanity. (laughs) That's for sure. That's for sure. You know, as you know, and as our listeners know, I talk about broken heartedness because we all have it. And when we're talking about connection, I always think about, huh, where, where is the broken heartedness in me or in the person I'm talking to? And where is that bridge from broken heartedness to connection? Because I think by definition, broken heartedness is, is disconnection, right? Yeah. And, and I was lucky because in my childhood, I had both my grandmother and my dog who were my touchstones, right? They were so full of love, so unconditional, so consistent in my childhood that they gave me something to really depend upon and and internalize and take with me wherever I go. The problem is not everybody has that, you know, that you can ask yourself, listeners, you can ask yourself, who is there for me in my childhood who is really emotionally reliable, who is consistent, loving, accepting? Who who was that? Was there a person like that? Was there a pet like that? Was there a teacher like that? And hopefully you'll come up with at least one person or more. If you don't, not a problem. You can start right at this moment to, to keep your eyes out for those kinds of connectors in your life but you know i'm wondering sue when when i when i ask that question who are the most emotionally dependable people in your childhood yeah so i i did to the audience get these questions in advance (laughs) and that was the one that kind of stumbled because i'm like what's the right answer i always try to find like what the right answer is but i'm glad that you said that there isn't necessarily a right answer um And, and that you used your dog as an example um, is great because I, I was surrounded by pets and animals. And, but I really think I created emotionally reliable people in my head and in my fantasies. And, you know, I had a great kindergarten teacher um, that was, I felt like I could go to. Um, I wouldn't say my parents were emotionally reliable then or now they're, they're very unstable in their emotions. And um, so it didn't really have them, but I, I really feel like I created, I had stuffed animals with me throughout my childhood and into college. I think I took them with me um, that had different moods and, you know, I, I attached different emotions to those stuffed animals and they really helped me a lot. And I also relied on like journaling and and writing and writing and writing. So, yeah, uh, that's kind of, it was kind of a tough question for me to to answer. Yeah. 
No, but I appreciate your your honesty because I don't think you're alone in that at all. And what I do hear you saying, and by the way, I have stuffed animals in my office. For anybody who makes it into my office, you'll see I have a whole menagerie of, of stuffed animals that I've collected for many years. But what I hear you saying is that your imagination, your fantasy world, your way of trying to be as self-sufficient as possible. Also, your kindergarten teacher cannot be underestimated because that was a, a loving energy that you're describing. But but all of that is survival strategies, right? So you were trying to connect. It wasn't easy for you to find the, the specific person or persons, yeah. but, but you've been very resourceful because I've known you all these years to find people as you go along. And that's really what recovery is about and healing is about is learning about who those folks are in your life and cultivating those relationships. I mean, when you do find those people, I think you feel like you have that connection with someone um, where you can just, even if you had just met them, you know, that energy is just so authentic that it's just a good feeling when you do make those connections and, you know, going to college, like you just mentioned the reunion, we had really great connections in that group. And, and yeah, I mean, of course you and I've been connected for 35 years or so, but it's, it's a good feeling when you find that. So just being aware of it and in tune with it is, is really helpful. Yeah. You you know what I, I learned by being back there recently was that the people that I lived with were really my first functional family. I mean, we loved each other, right? We had problems, we had drama, we had conflicts, but we loved each other and we really tried to work it out. And and so I, I can't agree more. I think it's along the way, we find family of choice, hopefully. And again, that's advanced recovery when we can do that. What I wanted to do is circle back for a moment to what I mean by connection, because I'm not just talking about with other people. I'm talking about connection to ourselves, connection to others, and connection to a power greater than yourself, whatever that might mean to you. And so I wanted to break that down a little bit and talk about self, others, and a power greater than oneself so that we can really look at what a more comprehensive version of connection is really about. So connection to self is is really starts for me, because this has been my focus for a while, is feeling comfortable in my own skin, feeling the fullness of who I am to have the capacity to really live life fully, right? And, and, and what we call regulation, feeling more regulated, which is a nervous system term for, you know, feeling a sense of calm, peace, and grounded within my, my system, within my body right? So that's the nervous system piece of self. Then the next piece has to do with being able to relax. And this is not meant to be a lightweight uh, idea of relaxation. I'm really talking about physiological changes based on breath, based on heart rate, based on blood pressure, 
right? So not just vegging in front of the TV, but really truly relaxing, like it could be in a yoga class or it could be meditating, but anything that allows the body to, to ground, right? You know, another um, thing that, that I believe is important here is to, to just mention that when I'm more responsive rather than reactive, when I'm able to respond rather than react, it means that I'm more comfortable with myself, right? If I'm reactive, it usually means that something is off, that I, I, I'm edgy, I'm irritable, I'm cranky. But if something happens that, that really activates me and I'm able to respond and take my time and pause, that, that, that's a huge distinction, right? So that's just a little bit about the connection to self. Do you want to add anything or, or, or comment on any of that, Sue? Yeah, sure. So I notice um, right now in the job that I'm working um, that I, I get approached by people who are really, um, for lack of a better word, like inflated, they're, they're, <laughs> in, they're covered, they have like anxiety and they're coming at me and I can see them coming. And <laughs> I just take that relaxation. Like I've yeah. been applying that to my response. So I am responding instead of reacting. And I love that feeling because I used to always be in super reactionary mode and yeah. you yeah. say and do things without really thinking it's kind of like i'm trying to rewire and, and to respond so i love that and right. i and i get to practice that every single day so wow. I'm, i feel like i'm so lucky because these things just keep popping up and i'm like oh i can respond to this yeah. i'm not in a hurry i'm not anxious i don't need to feed off of that energy at all and then when i respond it, it's amazing what it does to the other person you know that's so, right and then i don't get all that energy coming at me that it's toxic you know so I love that. I didn't know the words for it. So I'm, I'm really happy that you put words to what it was I was doing. And um, yeah. when you're feeling that you can respond, it's like being on a vacation. I mean, it's such a like, <laughs> yeah, it's such a good feeling. So yeah. Um, yeah. And I, and I, I'm just happy to be able to evolve to, to this point in my life where I can do that and just be aware of it. So it's nice. Well, the piece that, that, I really appreciate about what you're saying is that you're identifying with what they're going through. You know what it's like to be stressed out, but instead of having to get absorbed or caught in, in their anxiety, you're able to have compassion for them. And then their nervous system gets more regulated because your nervous system is more regulated. So you're giving them that co-regulation, which is beautiful, right? which is actually the next piece because we do co-regulate like with my grandmother, I, I grew up in a hectic, chaotic, bizarre home. And my grandmother was this touchstone of regulation for me where I would just go to her quiet, um, mellow, you know, apartment where she would cook and we would play cards and it was so regulating. So, mm. so, there's the self-regulation, which is important to be able to do, but there's also the co-regulation, right? And I've always leaned into co-regulation because I, I can't always do it for myself. 
Um, <clears throat> so connection to others has to do, if I boil it down, has to do with giving and receiving love freely, right? Yeah. Giving and receiving love freely. And most people I talk to, not everybody, but most people I talk to are more practiced at giving love, actually, where there's that imbalance where they're really able to give love out, but oftentimes have trouble receiving love. Mm. So more times than not, there's something about receiving love that can almost be dangerous or feel like too much. I'm, I'm speaking partially for myself, but partially for, for people I've talked to for years now. But love in its purest form is, is connection, right? right? It's, it's the connection of two heart spaces into one. And I'm not just talking about romantic love, right? I'm talking about could be family members, pets, um, friends, people in program, anything like that. Now, nowadays, what I have whittled it, whittled it down to is that I have to stay in constant contact with my therapist, constant contact with my sponsor, and constant contact with what I call God or higher power or a power greater than oneself. And those are really my objects of connection, right? That's the, the co-regulation and the connection to others that, that really works for me. Do you want to share anything about that, Sue? I'm still like that person that doesn't know how to receive love. It's scary to me. But I am really freely like I feel like I, I can give it out, um, but I'm getting there. I'm aware of it. So I think it's a work in progress. Um, I, I still turn inside a lot like I don't have those things that you speak of. I mean, I think of more God as a universal energy and I connect with that all the time. I mean, that's my that's my go to. Um, but. Yeah, I'm still working on on the uh, feeling to allowing that love to be brought in from from outside. So but I, I mean, with my kids, I talk to a lot and I feel like we can go back and forth on things on different level, but I'm still the parent. So it's a different type of love. But but I'm getting sure. there. I'm aware of it. Um, but yeah. Well. I'm absolutely with you, Sue. I, I, I think that what we're talking about is lifelong. I, I don't feel shame about it anymore. And I don't feel like there's anything that I'm doing wrong or that I'm not doing enough of. All I know is that I, I carry that awareness that when am I able to receive the love a little bit more? It might be incremental. It might be glacial. But when am I able to receive it a little bit more? Like when I was back in Boston with our friends, I, I think I did a pretty good job of receiving the love. I mean, I was shocked, number one, that they all showed up. <laughs> that was in itself, that was a lot of love. Um, but there was something about just acknowledging the, the, the you know, just the ease and, and the fun of being together. That That's love, right? So I, luckily I had a, a day or two to debrief with our friend Sue, um, our other friend Sue, but um, 
but yeah, I, I do believe it's lifelong and it, and it comes in different shapes and forms and, you know, we stumble and fumble, right? But, but as long as we keep trying, that's what really matters the most. Yeah, for sure. So Andrew, how does emotional sobriety fit into all of this? I'm glad you asked. Part of emotional sobriety is, is really kind of grappling with why we're here, right? It's, it's looking at purpose, right? What, what, what am I doing here? It's, it's um, about purpose. It's about meaning. It's about having the capacity to ask the bigger questions and to wonder, huh, do I have something bigger than myself that, that is in front of me? You know, for, for me, I, I've, I've come down to the idea that relationships and growing relationships and helping others grow their relationships is really why I'm here. And one thing I'll say about emotional sobriety is that we can't really work on emotional sobriety unless we have basic sobriety. So whether that's sobriety from alcohol and drugs, whether that's uh, sexual sobriety from compulsive sexual behaviors, emotional sobriety can't even begin until those basic so-called destructive behaviors or problematic behaviors are out of the way, right? So the starting gate is once you've gotten sober, clean and sober, or, or um, you know, whatever you've done to, to, to define what your sexual sobriety is. So emotional sobriety is a funny, funny term. I, I think it goes along with emotional resilience. And I think it goes along with uh, the nervous system and being as regulated as possible most of the time. And we'll come back to what that means, regulation, dysregulation. But, but emotional sobriety in, in its purest sense is what we were talking about before. How can I be absolutely comfortable in my own skin? How can I be peaceful, calm, and grounded more of the time? And how can I hold what life has to offer? How can I live life fully? And how can I be as fully myself as possible? That's what I consider to be emotional sobriety. Wow. <laughs> you like that? <laughs> yeah, it just, it's a lot for, for my head to think. I'll have to think about that with me, like take that with me on the road. Um, Let me say one more thing about that. This is not just for addictive compulsive behaviors. The, the idea of emotional sobriety, at least how I see it and how I describe it, is really for everybody on the face of the earth. Not to sound too grand, but, but emotional sobriety, or, or we could call it emotional resilience, is, is really the, the pinnacle, kind of like what um, Maslow's hierarchy talked about. It's like self-actualization. It's like moving towards that place of, of absolutely being fully ourselves and feeling that sense of, of being kind of at the top of the mountain, like we've really you know, given it our best shot. But do you think it's sustainable? I don't think it's 100% sustainable. I think what we're looking for hopefully is more emotional sobriety 
more of the time, more emotional resilience, more of the time, more regulation, more of the time. I don't think it could possibly be 100% of the time, but hopefully it's more frequent, right? So that we can live our lives in that space more, more of the time. And if we somehow bump out of that space, that we know that we're out of it, that we're dysregulated or that we're discombobulated or whatever the case may be, and, and that we can ask for help, that we can use whatever tools to, to, to learn how to come back to a more regulated uh, space within ourselves. Well, how do you even know if your nervous system is regulated? That's a great question. And I'm going to give you the, the, um, the nickel answer for a, a, like a $10 um, description. So, so how I look at it is regulation. I'm going to give you the R's, right? We're, we, it's resiliency, it's resourcefulness, and it's regulation. And when we're feeling all of those things, when we're feeling regulated, resourceful, and resilient, that's a pretty buoyant space, right? That's a pretty comfortable, like I said, calm, peaceful, grounded space inside of us. Sometimes we upregulate and we become rageful, we become panicky, we get hypervigilant, all kinds of things, kind of like the accelerator is on and it's difficult to, to take off you know, the, the pressure on the pedal, or we downregulate and we feel disconnected, depressed, dissociated, shut down, et cetera. And it's human. It's absolutely human to upregulate and downregulate. The, the challenge is how do we find our way back to that regulated state more efficiently? Hopefully over time with the right tools, and I recommend, I always recommend to everyone to consider a somatically trained therapist if possible, because then instead of just working with thoughts and feelings, you'll also be working with the body, which is really where the nervous system lives, right? That's why it's a brain body modality. But, but without going on and on, the first order of business is awareness. If you're, somat if you're somatically aware of when you upregulate and when, when you downregulate, if you're aware of when you're feeling more regulated and you can really tune into that, that's, that's the beginning. That, that's what I would recommend as the first action step. It's interesting. So I started teaching this session on happiness and going through layers in your body. And the first step I have everyone do the first thing is just become aware of, pick something to be aware of. And I picked butterflies. Um, and then later through the coursework, we're switching our awareness to be a feeling that we have inside because it's hard to just always be aware of your emotions or whatever. Um, but it's interesting how some people can do it through the course of like three or four weeks where others struggle with with finding the awareness of when your heart starts racing or when you're feeling at edge or on at ease. So it just, it does take time. And I just encourage people to have patience with it yeah. and, just, and just try to work that muscle of awareness because it's going right. to open up so much 
more to you and into your life and to gather some insight into um, how you're feeling and how you're reacting. I did a biofeedback yeah. clinic once when I had migraines and uh-huh. it, it was amazing to, I was hooked up to a bunch of things, but you can actually control your breathing and your heartbeat right. and you can right. learn how to do that. Our body is amazing. Yeah. Um, so I really like that the first step is awareness. And I think that that's, yeah. that's critical. I, mean, I know we talked about it at the top of the show too, but. Yeah. And I, I appreciate you saying all of that because what we're really talking about, especially for those who may not have a whole lot of therapy under their belt is, is that it's like learning a foreign language, right? And, and it's very frustrating when we're unable to identify what's happening in our body, that's, that's okay. You know, I, I speaking for myself, I, I lived life very frozen, very um, hyper intellectually focused for, for many decades. And, and so to identify anything that was happening in my body was an uphill battle. And so I really encourage everyone not to get too caught up in in the right or wrong, but just to consider the possibilities, right? Because sometimes it takes a coach or a therapist. Sometimes it it takes a sponsor to, you know, ask you these kinds of questions from time to time. But, But more than anything, to allow yourself to feel like a little kid because I know when I first started identifying what was happening in my body, I I couldn't come up with anything at first. I couldn't come up with anything. And then something happened. I'll tell you a quick story. My trainer, I was in the somatic experiencing training and the trainer had me come up to do a, 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 a demo, a demonstration. And we were talking about my aunt who I happened to be very close to. And as I was talking about my history with her and how important she's been to me all these years, my back started to sweat so much that my chair was wet. And all I can say is that was a actually a very pleasant release because I was holding in all of that love and admiration and, and sense of gratitude that I have for that relationship. And that was my first experience where my body just did what it needed to do. And that's really what we're asking is not to force anything, not to get caught up in the performance anxiety of it, but just be curious and observe. Yeah, interesting. It's great. It's great that you caught that. Yeah, I, I was lucky because I, I had a wonderful guide, you know, that very, very um, experienced uh, somatic experience practitioner, but also because I, I think I was ready. And I think that's the thing. It's like when we're ready to become more fluent in this kind of language, which is really the connection to self, um, then, then the door is open. Wonderful. Yeah. So as we're talking, what I wanted to kind of bring around is that emotional sobriety and nervous system regulation actually go together and overlap quite a bit. 
they're very similar. They really are both part of feeling a, a, a sense of cohesion within ourselves mm-hmm. and, and feeling more like ourselves, right? And as I see it, they, they really are per, they're pillars of, of sustainable recovery. And what I mean by that is if emotional sobriety and nervous system regulation are being attended to and are really um, part of your recovery, I believe your vulnerability to relapse or um, what somebody said at the conference, your vulnerability to recurrence is going to be less, which I think is, is a beautiful thing, right? Anything we can do to reduce the vulnerability to recurrences, mm-hmm. right? So I just wanna end by coming back to the Johan Hari quote once again. The quote goes like this, the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. And I really hope that that all of you who tuned in today can really hold the, the awareness and the possibilities of what connection really means to you. Connection to self, connection to others, and connection possibly to a power greater than yourself, whether that's nature, pets, God, whatever you call something of a universal energy, like you mentioned, Sue. And um, I've really had fun sharing about this because I've been percolating for quite a while, like a year or more on this particular topic. And we've never had a chance to talk about it on the podcast. Oh, and I love it. Thank you so much. And I'm definitely leaning more towards the uh, nervous system regulation Uh, phrasing because emotional sobriety to me seems still so unattainable (laughs) Um, but I'll I'll get there I'll work on it thanks so much for sharing all of this Andrew oh my gosh my pleasure and I look forward to our next time together thank you for listening today it's always great to share this time with my colleague and friend Sue Merlino and discussing this topic the opposite of addiction is connection Be sure to give us a five-star rating on iTunes or please share our podcast on Spotify. And if there are topics you would like us to discuss in the future, please just let us know. I look forward to you joining us on future podcasts and thanks again for being with us today.